Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to take them with me and open them to an unfamiliar passage of Scripture in the Old Testament to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. This morning in our time together, I want to share with you a passage of Scripture and a story of a man in the Bible that you may have never, ever heard about. It's a man by the name of Barak. In fact, I would suggest this morning that if you do not have a a scripture reading plan where you're reading certain portions of scripture every single day. Uh, You may not have ever read Judges chapter 4. You may not have ever even heard the story about this man named Barak. After the early service a moment ago, someone stopped me and said, I've been in church for 40 years. I think I've heard the story, but I couldn't remember it to save my life. And uh, hopefully God used it to encourage him and challenge him this morning and that God will do the same in our life. I want to ask you a question this morning that's very simple Uh, But yet it's profound when we think about its impact in our life. And that question is this. What fears today are hindering you from doing all that God has called you to do? What fears are hindering you today from doing all that God has called you to do? We all face fear in life. None of us want to have fear. We don't enjoy the emotion of fear. We don't enjoy maybe the anxiety that comes with it. We don't want those things necessarily unless maybe you're going to a haunted trail somewhere. But the fact of the matter is we don't want to be afraid. And yet we all can face and experience fear. I'm reminded of the illustration. I've shared it with you before of a little boy one day who was home And he was in bed that night, and it was pouring down rain outside. And the louder the rain got, the more nervous he became. And finally, what was a rainstorm turned into a full-blown thunderstorm, and he could hear the thunder rumbling. And he began to try to cover his eyes under the the blankets that evening. And then after a while, he, he got boldness, and he peeked his eyes out from the covers, and suddenly he looked at the window, and he saw it light up as bright as it is at noonday because lightning was piercing through the sky. And he was afraid, so he called out, Mama, come here. And so his mother came running into the room and he said, Mama, will you, will you lay in bed with me for a little while? I'm scared. And she got in beside, bed beside him. She laid beside him and she, you know, she comforted him and cuddled with him like only a mother can do for a child. And he was calm and she got to get up and he said, no, Mama, stay just a few more minutes. And so she stayed a few more minutes and finally she said, no, honey, you've got to go to bed and I've got to go sleep with daddy in our bed. And he said, no, mom, would you please stay? And she said, she said, no, honey, daddy really needs me to sleep with him in his bed tonight. And finally, he thought about it for just a moment, thinking about his dad needing his mom. And he said, mama, why, why? And she just said, I can't explain it, son, but your daddy needs me to sleep with him tonight. And finally, in the wisdom of a small child, he said, daddy's a big sissy, mommy. We all know what it's like to feel fear, and we all have experienced those things. And some of us are afraid of things that are kind of minor uh, in the grand scheme of life. For example, by show of hands, how many of you are afraid of spiders? Oh, my. Thank God you didn't grow up in Alabama, folks, okay? How many of you are afraid of snakes? That's right. The only good snakes are dead. Amen? Amen. The rest of you need to repent. All right? And how many of you are afraid of mice? Anybody like that? All right. I don't know if we've got anybody in a minute. Anybody afraid of the dark? 
I don't know, maybe a little bit, okay? We all have certain things that we're afraid of. There are little certain things that if we see them, if we experience them, like instantly we, there's an anxiety that comes with it. There's a fear that comes with it. And yet at the same time, there's other times we're afraid of certain experiences. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of, of the tragedy that could potentially happen. You know, the, the odds might be one in a million, but it could happen. And we allow those things to rule our mind and they cause us to fear. But here's the reality is that fear never stands in and, on, in and by itself. Fear affects us in many different ways. It affects us biologically. It affects us literally the chemistry of our brain. But in many ways, it can also affect us spiritually. Because fear can paralyze us and hinder us from trusting God and moving forward with him. Fear can hinder us from doing the very thing that God might have created and be calling you to do in the moment. And I believe from Judges chapter 4, God uses a very unique pastor scripture to show us how we can trust God even at times when we are afraid. We can trust God even when we are afraid. Now, the Bible tells us that, yes, we have fear, but God is not the one who gives us a spirit of fear. In fact, the Bible says that very clearly in Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The context of that is talking about how we live for the Lord and how we share the gospel. God is not the one who calls us to fear in those moments, for God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. David understood this in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 54 and chapter 56 as well. He begins to explain the importance of trusting God even at times when we're afraid. Listen to what David penned in Psalm 56 verses 1 through 4. He said, Oh, be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for there are many who fight proudly against me. What did David resolve in that moment? In that moment, David had been captured by the Philistine army. But what did he resolve in that moment of fear and sheer terror, that moment of uncertainty of what the future would hold? Here's what he said. He said, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, whose word in God and whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? What was David saying? David was saying, listen, when the storms of life are coming against me, when the hardships are weighing on me, when my future is uncertain, here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to look to you, and I'm going to put my trust in you. It's because he was able to trust in God, God brought him through that storm. God gave him victory in that season, and God further revealed his plans and his purposes for David's life, and God does the same in our own. So my question is just simple. What are you afraid of this morning, and how is that fear hindering you from doing what God is calling you to do? In Judges chapter 4, I want to introduce to you to this man by the name of Barak, who is a very unfamiliar man in the Bible. Truth be told this morning, frankly, he not only is unfamiliar, he's kind of a very unlikely candidate to be using from a sermon illustration this morning. We've been going through Hebrews chapter 11. We've been studying this great hall of faith, men and women of God throughout the years, throughout the centuries, who have lived for God, have trusted God, they walked by faith, and God did incredible things through them. In the midst of all these great names, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joseph and Sarah and Rahab and all these individuals, God introduces us to a man by the name of Barak. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 34 says it this way, And what more shall I say? 
For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Listen to what they did. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. When we study the life of Barak, I want to emphasize that statement that from weakness he became strong. Truth be told is if you were asking me as a pastor this morning, pastor, tell me your top 100 people in the Bible to study, Barak would not crack the top 100. If you were to ask me, pastor, give me your best examples from all of scripture to model my life after, I'm telling you, I could probably think of a thousand people before I would think of this man named Barak. And here's the reason why. Because in his flesh, Barak was a number one Class A scaredy cat. That's what he was, okay? I know that's not Greek. I know that's not Hebrew. I know that's not politically correct. But he was a wimp. He was scared. He was walking and living in fear along with just about every other man in his culture at that time. And yet, God saw fit to include him in this chapter of Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. Frankly, it's not that he had a tremendous amount of faith. It's not that he provided an amazing example for us. But here's what he did do. In a moment where he was brought to a crisis of belief, he put what little faith he had in the only person that matters. And when he put that little faith in the power and the greatness and the opportunity of God, God did extraordinary things. I want you to know this morning, you may be here today, and you may be a person, frankly, of weak faith. You may be a person here today who have all sorts of fears, all sorts of anxiety. You may be a person here today, God's calling you to do something, and you've been making excuses, and you've been putting it off, and you've been afraid of it for so long. But I want you to know this morning, it doesn't matter how weak your faith is, even if you have a mustard seed-sized faith, if you will put it in the one who has all power and all authority, God can do extraordinary, impossible things when you place your faith in him. He'll use it to grow you. And he'll use it to strengthen you. And he'll use it to accomplish his purposes in your life. Trusting God when you are afraid. If you're physically able this morning, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? We're going to read Judges chapter 4. There are some weird names, so bear with me as I pronounce them. We're going to read verses 1 through 16 as we see this story unfold of the life of Barak. Trusting God when you are afraid. Beginning in verse 1. The Bible tells us a sad statement, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harashoth, Hagoyim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots. And he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. So she sent and summoned Barak, 
the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Nephtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded. Here's the command, Barak. Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. Here's what God says. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his many troops of the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Verse 10, Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Skip down to verse 12. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots. That's the third time we see it in the text. And all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Deborah then said to Barak, listen to these words. Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Trusting God when you are afraid. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this day and this time together. Thank you for the freedom that we have to come to this place to open your word. And God, we've opened your word, but I also pray now that we would open our hearts to hear from you. Father, open our ears, open our eyes, Father, to see, to hear all that you would have for us. And may we respond in faith, may we respond in obedience. God, I pray today that you would show us this pastor scripture written so long ago still has power to influence and impact our lives today. God, I thank you for the reminder that no matter how weak our faith may be, when we place it in you, you can still do the impossible and accomplish your purposes for your glory. So, Father, would you do that here today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Trusting God when you are afraid. It may seem strange to you to hear about this unknown guy named Barak. And just to be honest with you, even when you're reading through Hebrews chapter 11 and reading the names of significant people in the Old Testament largely, it even then seems somewhat out of place. Frankly, I have been greatly encouraged and challenged as I've gone back and studied Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5 to be reminded of this story and how God was working in an extraordinary way. The fact of the matter is this morning is that when we look at Barak, he seems like one of the most unlikely people to ever be considered in the great hall of faith because of the little size of his faith. But I'm reminded this morning that we can never underestimate what God can do even with our little faith. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is so small, if I were holding it in my hand right now, you could not see it from a distance. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. 
The story of Barak teaches us that God can work through anyone with any measure of faith as long as their faith is placed in him. So this morning, I want us to learn four things or see four observations from the story of Barak's life that my hope is, is that through them, God will use them to encourage us, God will use them to challenge us, but God will also use them to strengthen us in our faith today. Four things. If you're ready, would you say, all right? The first thing I want you to see this morning are the dilemmas that we face. The dilemmas that we face. Every single one of us know what a dilemma is. It's a difficulty. It's a circumstance. It's a trial. It's a hardship that we face in life. And the fact of the matter is we can all relate to that because we've all faced them. The Bible tells us that man born of woman is few days with many troubles. And the idea of that is to say that we live in a broken world and we experience that brokenness. Many times in relationships, many times even in the brokenness of our bodies. They're not made to last forever. We experience them throughout the context of our life. We face all sorts of trials. Sometimes those trials come in our life to perfect us. And when I say perfect us, I mean that they come in our life to mold us and to shape us and to equip us so that we are better prepared for the things that God is wanting to do in our life. James chapter 1 says it this way, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter these various trials. Why? How can you count it joy when you go through trials? Here's how. Because you're knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, storms come at times, trials and dilemmas come to perfect us. Numerous times I've walked through a difficulty in my life where I've walked through it and I've recognized in that 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 God was wanting to do something in my life. And I may not have understood what that was in the moment, but, but God taught me to trust him and God taught me to surrender to him and God will give me words of scripture to encourage me through those seasons. And there have been times I've walked through those seasons I've wondered, God, why did that happen? God, why did you allow that to happen? Why was that circumstance so, so, so prevalent in my life in that moment? Only to find out months later or maybe even years later, in one case a decade later, to find out that God was teaching me something in that circumstance to prepare me for a further ministry that he wanted to do in the days ahead. Storms come to perfect us. But there are also times that storms and difficulties, trials and dilemmas come not only to perfect us, but sometimes they come to correct us. God so greatly loves us that he will send a storm into our life to correct us, to get our attention, to help us see where we've gotten off course so that we can be drawn back to a right relationship with him. In fact, the Bible refers to it as God's discipline, that God disciplines us like a father disciplines a child. Now, I want you to know I am thankful to be a father, but the thing I probably have, have hated the most about being a father have been those times where my child has had to be disciplined. I know that you think my children are probably angelic and heavenly, and they are when they're like their mama, but sometimes too much of their daddy is in them as well. And they can be mischievous, and they can do things. And at times, there are times that discipline has to be enforced. But when discipline occurs, it's not because I'm mad at them. It's not because I'm angry at them. It's because I love them. I want them to be in right relationship with me, but I also want them to be in right relationship with God and do the things that please God and honor him. Listen to what God says about our own actions and his discipline towards us when we go astray. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, and also verse 8, God says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation which was addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, hear that, 
Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He said, Pastor, why are we talking about dilemmas? And why are we talking about discipline? Because that is what God's people were experiencing in Judges chapter 4. They were experiencing two specific dilemmas in Judges 4. Number one, they were experiencing the dilemma of suffering. They were experiencing intense suffering in that day. Look at what the scripture says in Judges chapter 4 verse 1. It says, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now, some context of that would help us. Ehud was a godly leader amongst the Israelites. In fact, the Bible tells us that Ehud lived and ruled for 80 years. And for 80 years, as he was ruling and as he was leading, God's people lived for God. They tried to honor God. They tried to do things to please God. They lived in a way that honored God. Why? Because they had a godly leader who was leading them to do so. But the Bible tells us that Ehud died. And as soon as Ehud died, the people took their eyes off of the blesser and began to focus only on the blessings. Oh, look at what we have. Look how good we have it. And instead of recognizing God and his goodness and living for him, they began to try to get more. They wanted more of this and more of that, more of their own experiences. And before long, they began to turn to their own fleshly desires. They began to do whatever was right in their own eyes. Whatever felt good to them, they did it. Whatever seemed good in their mind, they did it. Whatever that's all they wanted, they did it. Whatever experience their mind could come up with, God's people began to reject a relationship with God and began to turn to their own fleshly wants. And God simply summarizes the verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. Here's a reality. God loves his children so greatly that he will not allow us to continue to sin successfully. He's not going to allow us to continue to live in a sin that's openly defiant of him, openly going our own way without him doing something to get our attention. At times, he sends storms to correct us and to get our attention, to humble us so that we'll be brought low to a place of brokenness and repentance to turn from our sin. Other times, go ask the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, God simply calls us home so that we're no longer a reproach on the name of Christ. But God loves us that much. And so what we see when the Israelites in this moment is this. They had had 80 years of tremendous blessings from God. But now that Ehud has died and they have turned to their own ways and their own agenda, they have begun to experience intense suffering. In fact, the Bible says that God allowed the Canaanite people to have a king raised up by the name of Jabin. Jabin was a ruthless king, frankly, who was a leader of the Canaanites who brought to his position a man by the name of Sisera. Can you say the name Sisera? He's a key person in this scripture because the name Sisera is a reminder to us of the torment and the terror that he brought against the Israelites. Picture the scene for just a moment. In the book of Joshua, years earlier, the Israelites had been promised Canaan, the promised land. As you read through the book of Joshua, you see the Israelites going into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And as they are claiming the land, God is giving them the land, but he's either removing or destroying every one of Israel's enemies. But here in this moment, we're introducing Judges chapter 4 to the Canaanites again. And the Bible says that they had become a powerful people again. Jabin was their king, and they had Sisera, and frankly, they hated God's people. 
They hated the Israelites. They looked at the Israelites and said, it's your fault that we lost our land. It's your fault that we lost our provisions. It's your fault that all these terrible things happened. And so Sisera ruled there in that military role for 20 years. The Bible said he ruled severely over the Israelites. In fact, the word that's described here when it says that he treated them severely for 20 years, it literally means an overwhelming weight. It was a burdensome weight on the people of God, a weight that was too heavy. They were greatly suffering. But not only were they suffering because of this oppressive rule of an ungodly leader who was bringing all sorts of torment and terror towards them, they were also experiencing a suffering of a different kind. It wasn't something that was so loud and something so proud, but it was something every bit as dangerous, and that is this. In that culture, in that day, God's people were lacking something specific, and that is they were lacking a presence of godly men. They were kind of like the day in Haggai chapter 1, verse 11, God begins to tell the people, because of their disobedience, God called it for a drought. But listen to what he said. God says, on the grain on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, and listen to the next statement, and on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. God says, I called for a drought because of your disobedience. One of the primary evidences of the suffering of God's people in Judges chapter 4 is that there were no godly men. There weren't men who had a godly conviction about them, about honoring God and living for him. There weren't men who had a courage about them to look to God and trust him and to move forward in faith. Those men didn't exist in the moment. There weren't those men who were humble servants, who were seeking to shepherd God's people and to minister to them and to serve in any way they could. They were greatly lacking amongst God's people. And so here in Judges chapter 4, there's a great suffering that takes place because when you don't have godly men doing what God has called them to do, you in essence will have ungodly men beginning to lead and do things that they shouldn't do. And that's what, God, that's what was happening in Judges chapter 4. And this brought them to a second dilemma, and that is the dilemma of sorrow. Have you ever been sorrowful over something? Ever been to a point of just complete grief? Just overwhelmed burden? Some of you maybe this morning are in that place. You're overwhelmed with a burden. It could be a family member that's passed away or someone that's not living for the Lord that you're burdened about. It could be a burden of sin in your own life. There are many things in our life that can bring sorrow. What do you do in those moments? In Judges chapter 4, God's people are there. They're experiencing intense suffering, and this suffering now is bringing them to a place of sorrow, bringing them to a place where they're crying out to God. It's bringing them to a place where they're desperate. They need God to do something. They need God to show up. They cry out with a godly sorrow. Friend, I'm reminded this morning in the midst of our hardship and suffering, please understand today that the children of Israel, for those years when Ehud died, they thought they could do whatever they wanted to without consequence. They could do whatever they wanted to without any repercussions. They could do whatever they want to. After all, it was their life. It was their opportunity. It was their freedom. They could do what they wanted without anything happening. But I want to remind us that the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. These individuals, of course, experienced the consequences of their suffering, and it led them to a place of great sorrow. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in verse 3, It was then that the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. After 20 years of oppression, after 20 years, frankly, Sisera brought so much terror and torment amongst them, to be perfectly honest, 
I don't feel like I can explain to you the depths of the evil in his heart that he lashed out upon them. I don't think it would be appropriate to talk about how grotesque he was and the things that he did. But please understand the Israelites are in a place of utter and total desperation. They're in a place where, frankly, their only hope was God. They're sorrowful, overwhelmed, burdened, grieving this situation. And even though they're in the midst of sorrow, the good news is they were turning their sorrow to the right person. They were turning to the Lord. Pastor, what do I do if I feel like I'm experiencing consequences of my sin? What do I do if I feel like God is judging me? What do I do if I feel like I'm in sorrow? Here's what you do. You look to the Lord. Here's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 about God's discipline of us. It says, he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Listen to what God says. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Amen? Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I can honestly say to you, I have never, ever enjoyed being disciplined by God. But I'm so thankful at times that he has. I'm so thankful at times he's convicted me. I'm so thankful at times that he's brought me to a place where I realize I needed God's help. I needed God's deliverance. I needed God's forgiveness. That's where the people of God were. The dilemma that we see in this scripture. But the second thing I want you to see this morning is the direction that God gives. The direction that God gives. You may be here this morning and be in that place where, well, I, I don't know that I've really sinned all that much. I don't know that we've, I've done all that, thing, all that bad. You know, I see these obstacles and these fears and these challenges, these issues in my life, but I don't know that, that big of a deal. Please understand this morning, it's not going to be until the point where you get broken before God and cry out to God that you're going to get the direction and the instruction that you need from God. Sometimes we're content to say, well, you know, I'm doing okay. Life's not, you know, it's not all that bad. I'm not sinning all that bad. I mean, I'll figure this out and clean this up and I'll get myself free from these things. And what God wants us to see is our only hope for deliverance from our sin is him. Our only hope for victory over our fears is him. The only way we can move forward in a way that pleases him is to look to him. And so we see that with the Israelites. They're in a place where they knew they could do nothing to change their circumstance. So what do they do? They cry out to God. And when they cry out to God, what does God do? God hears, but not only does he hear, he gives word of instruction and direction. Can I say to you, I am so thankful that the Bible tells us in 1 Peter that we have a God who loves us and invites us to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. Amen? God cares for you. But when you talk to God in prayer, God doesn't just hear you. He hears, but if you'll be still long enough to listen, if you'll be faithful enough to get into his word, he not only will hear, but he will begin to guide you and will begin to instruct you and will begin to direct you. Maybe you're, man, God, I'm struggling with this sin, and, and God, I repent of it. I turn from it, but God, I need your help. And as you do that, not only does God forgive you and cleanse you, but God begins to give you instruction and direction to help you walk in obedience. There was a young lady in the early service this morning. Pastor, I've been in this situation where I needed God's guidance and God's direction. She came to this place this morning where she cried out to God and she said, God, I believe you're calling me to, to serve you. I believe you're wanting more for me in the context of missions. God, what would you have me to do? And literally by the time she left here today, as God was directing her to people, God began to give her some instruction. When we cry out to God, God hears, praise him for that, but he also gives instruction and direction in what to do. And we see that in Judges chapter 4 through what took place next. The Bible introduces us to another main character in the text, 
a lady by the name of Deborah. Can you say the name Deborah? Deborah. The Bible tells us in verse 4 that Deborah was a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, who was judging Israel at that time. Now think of the scene for a moment. God's people are a people without men. They're a people without godly conviction amongst the men, with a courage to stand up and do what's right. And in the midst of that, we have a wicked king that's now arisen, and he is forcing all sorts of control and terror and fear and torment upon God's people. So what does God do? God calls a lady. He calls a woman, a prophetess named Deborah, to be a messenger for him. And some get uncomfortable with that. But here's the reality. Four times in the Old Testament and four times in the New Testament, God raised up a prophetess to give a message from him. In fact, the most common of them in the Old Testament was Miriam, Moses' sister. But in the New Testament, Philip, the deacon, if you'll remember him, from Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 8, he had four daughters who were prophetesses. So, Pastor, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. God will deliver his message through any available vessel, even if there isn't a godly man willing to surrender to him. And in that moment, that's what God was doing. Now, the role of a prophetess was not the role of a pastor. It's not the role of an overseer that we see in the book of Timothy. But clearly, a prophetess was called by God, was gifted by God, and was used by God to accomplish specific purposes in delivering the message of God to the people at that time. That's what happened. I realize that we live in a day where there's a cultural sensitivity about that. If you've been on social media this week, there's been all kinds of debate in the evangelical world because and conflict because of some Somebody who is being a jerk and someone who's being accused of all kinds of things. But the simple reality is, is that God can use anyone who is available and willing to be used by him. And there are some guidelines in that. We see that through First and Second Timothy. But the reality is in this moment, God had a specific purpose. He had a specific message. So he raised up Deborah to speak the word to this man named Barak. So God speaks to Deborah, and I think we see a few things. First thing I want you to consider about this direction of God is that we see God's direction first comes in the form of a promise. God gives a promise. I do not know about you, but I am so thankful, and I am so greatly encouraged that when we come to God and cry out, when God speaks, his first words are words of promise. When we come to God, God, will you forgive me of my sin? God, I, I've messed up again. God, I've, I've blown it. I, I knew better. God, would you forgive me my sin? And God's word of assurance comes, yes, I'll forgive you and cleanse you. I'll set you free. When we come to God, God, would you, I, I don't have the gifts or the skills that so-and-so has, but God, I, I want to be used by you. God, would you, would you use my life for you? And God gives that word of promise, absolutely. I can gift you, I can equip you, and yes, I will use you for my glory. God gives words of promise. In the context of Barak, here's what we find. Deborah the prophetess speaks the message of God, and God says, call for Barak. Get Barak. Get Barak from the tribe of Naphtali. Get him to come. And here's what he says to Barak. The Bible says that literally God commanded, go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. Think of this for just a moment. God goes on to promise, verse 7, I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots, his many troops to the river, and I will give him into your hand. God is giving a word of promise. Barak, be strong, be courageous, get men together from these two different tribes of Israel, go to Mount Tabor, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to defeat the enemy, I'm going to give them into your hand. Here is a word of promise. That's what God is saying. Now, I have to be honest with you. 
God's promise in this moment was a little overwhelming for Barak. God ever convicted you of something or even assured you of a promise that felt a little overwhelming before? Like you weren't sure if you really wanted that or not? I think that's where Barak was. Because Sisera was a cruel leader. When God is saying, hey, Barak, I want you to go to Mount Tabor, and I'm going to draw Sisera out to come against you. If I'm Barak, I'm sitting there thinking like, Lord, please don't do that. Like, please, I do not want to touch that hornet's nest. I do not want Sisera to come against me. Why? Because I'm afraid. Why? Because I don't think I can do it. Why? Because I don't have the power to defeat him. But God gives a promise. Barak, go to Mount Tabor. I'm going to draw out Sisera, and I'm going to deliver him to your hands. But not only do we see the promise, I think the second thing we see is what so commonly we struggle with, and that is we see the problem of man. The problem of man. God gives the promise. Barak, through Deborah, he gives the message, I'm going to be with you. Barak, I'm going to walk with you all the way to Mount Tabor. Barak, I'm going to draw the enemy out to you, and I'm going to give him into your hand. Barak, just go. I would love to tell you that Barak said, yes, Lord, I'm in it to win it. Let's go. That's not what he did. I would love to tell you that Barak was like this great hero of the faith and was just like full steam ahead like, you know, David, you know, uh, you come to me with a spear and a sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. But that was not Barak. Listen to Barak's problem. Barak's problem was the same problem that you and I face today, and that is he was afraid. He was afraid. This didn't make sense to him. I think he doubted how it could possibly happen. I think he thought he was probably going to die. He was afraid just like you and I probably would have been. How do we know he's afraid? Because of the next statement, verse 8. Notice what Barak said. Barak didn't say, yes, Lord, let's go. Let's do it. We'll get the victory. No. Barak looked back at Deborah and said, if you'll go with me, then I will go. But if you'll not go with me, I will not go. In 2019 terms, you know what he's saying? He's saying, I don't want to go. That's what he's saying. Only if you'll go with me because I am a class A scaredy cat and don't want to do it. That's what he's saying. But let me illustrate that somewhat humorously, but, but I do mean it. This actually happened. When I was growing up in Alabama, um, I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was a pastor uh, for many years. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, we, we had our old sanctuary and we, we built a, a wing that had some classrooms it was, and it was a long kind of hallway. I don't know how to describe it. It was just a, a long hallway with classrooms on either side. The hallway was right in the middle of both those classrooms. And at the far end of that hallway was the old sanctuary. And then kind of uh, on the other end of the building, we built this large sanctuary as the church grew. And I remember numerous times on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights, we would get done with church and everything. We'd go to leave, and my dad would look down that long hallway, and he would see at the old sanctuary or in that old far end of the building that somebody had left a single light on. And my dad would look at me and he'd say, Matthew, I need you to go down there and turn that light off. Now, I don't know if that means anything to you or not, but growing up in a church, I think the scariest place to possibly be is in a dark church building. You know what I mean? Like, like you remember in those old church buildings, that's where all the funerals were. I remember seeing the caskets there. Like, you know, like I thought this place seriously had ghosts in it down at the end of the hallway. And so I remember as a kid, like dad would say, I need you to go down there and turn off that light. And I would go through this little, this little kind of like foyer area. And then I'd come to that hallway 
And that long, it was just a long hallway with probably like 12 to 14 classes. It was pitch black, and it seemed like every classroom door was open. And I think I'd seen too many scary shows or something. But I would always, if I would start walking down that hallway, I was always envisioning that somebody would just reach out. One of those ghosts would reach out and grab me and, you know, pull me back in. And I remember numerous times getting to the edge of the hallway and literally taking off running as fast as I could because I was scared to go. But then one day I got smart. One day I realized I don't have to go turn off that light. So here's what I did. When my dad gave me the word to go turn off that light, I, like a smart child, went to my little brother and said, Dad said, you got to go turn off those lights. <laughs> true, true story. That Mark, Dad said, you got to go turn off those lights. He's, he's looking at me, uh-uh. Yeah, but you, you, Dad said, you got to do it. You're going to be in trouble if you don't. He's going to give you a spanking. If you, oh, he, he, sure enough. But Mark finally began to realize one day that he didn't have to do that alone. And finally, he's looking at me, he would say, I'll go if you go. I'll go if you go. And then I would wisely say, I have to do everything for you. Come on. And we'd go together, (laughs) knowing good and well that I was thankful to have somebody with me, right? That's where I was afraid. I was a kid walking down a dark hall. I was terrified. of something that didn't, you know, shouldn't have been terrified about. But that's, that's what I was at. That's where Barak is. Barak is hearing the promise of God, but then he brings this problem, and that problem is he's afraid. God, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. This is impossible. How could I possibly get victory here? I'm going to die. He's afraid. And his fear in this moment is paralyzing him. I don't want to go. But he just throw this out. If you'll go with me, then I will go. But if you'll not go with me, I will not, I will not go. And then what does Deborah say? Deborah the prophetess, looking at God and trusting God's word, God's message, what does she say? She says, verse 9, I will surely go with you. There's no doubt, no delay, no excuse, nothing. She's just like, God's in it, let's go. Right? I want that to be the kind of faith that I have. God's in it, let's go. That's where she's at. And so... Now that he has said this, he goes with her. Now, what happens after this is that he puts out a petition, puts out a plea to two different tribes of Israel. Remember, there are 12 tribes, but he puts out a plea to two of the tribes. Hey, we need people. We're going up to battle. We're going to fight against Sisera. We're going to go to Mount Tabor. Here's what's happening. And he didn't know the whole scheme, but he kind of knew the little bit that God had given him. And God provided exactly 10,000 soldiers. Now, please understand, when I say soldiers, I don't mean they were trained for battle. Judges chapter 5 literally calls them volunteers, which means they were just saying, hey, we're willing. We don't know how God's going to give the victory. We don't know what's going to happen, but we're willing to trust God. We're willing to move forward. We're tired of this oppression. We're willing to move forward. So 10,000 people volunteered to come together with this man named Barak, which, by the way, we have no biblical evidence that even suggests he had any prior military knowledge or experience. In fact, It's my opinion, and merely my opinion, that he was simply the most respectable man in Israel at the time, and that's why God chose him. 10,000, come to his aid. Let's go to Mount Tabor. Third, I want you to see the decision that pleases God. The decision that pleases God. Picture the scene with me for just a moment as we see what's happening. Sisera gets word that there is some punk in Israel named Barak who's leading a rebellion against him. In fact, he's not leading a rebellion. 
He's got 10,000 people at Mount Tabor. But think of this for just a moment. Sisera was the leader of all the Canaanite armies. He had well over 100,000 soldiers at his beck and call. Not only have 100,000 soldiers, he had 900 iron chariots. The Bible's told us that three times in the text. When Sisera hears that this rebel is coming against him, it absolutely infuriates him. Alabama phrase, it ticks him off, okay? I mean, he is done. He's, he's like, oh, man, I, I am going to show everybody how weak this little punk is. I'm going to make sure that Barak, when he walks down that mountain for this battle, that he never walks again. I'm going to make sure that everybody in the region knows that I am Sisera, and I'm the leader of this Canaanite army, and I'm going to be a force to be reckoned with. I'm going to make everyone fear me, and that's what he does. He literally puts out a plea for all the soldiers and for all the chariots. He literally is bringing every bit of power he has to the battle to fight 10,000 Meager, unprofessional volunteers. He wants everybody to know who's boss. And in that moment, God gives another word to Barak through Deborah, the prophetess. Verse 14. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands, Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. In other words, I want you to see for a moment the decision that is taking place. God is bringing Barak to a crisis of belief. He's bringing him to a moment where he could trust God and move forward in victory, or he could doubt God and be defeated. He could trust God and experience life, or he could doubt God and be killed. He could trust God and experience the joy and the rejoicing of walking in faith, or he could doubt God and, and of course, experience the shame and humiliation of defeat. But he's in a crisis of belief. He could, he could not stay where he was. He had to go one way or the other. And in this decision, I believe God is showing us through what took place with Barak what we must do when we face that decision. When faced with that decision to trust God, even in the midst of our fear, I want to encourage you to do two things. Number one, we must receive God's word by faith. We must receive God's word by faith. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In order for Barak to do what God was calling him to do, he could not merely function by the things that he saw. Barak is at the top of Mount Tabor, and he's looking across the other mountain range, and he sees Sisera and all the armies all gathered together there, hundreds of thousands of them, and the chariots are all getting gathering together there in the valley, and he's looking at his 10,000 men, and he's realizing he is way overmatched. He is outpowered. It's him. It's Deborah the prophetess and 10,000 people. There is nothing they could do to defeat that army. But in that moment, what does God say? He says, arise, for this is the day for victory. Can I say to you this morning that for some of you today, the word of the Lord for you is this. This is the day for victory. But I've been struggling with this sin for so long. I've been struggling with this habit for so long. You don't know how long it's had a grip on me. This is the day of victory. Repent of it today. Turn from it today and experience the deliverance that God can give you today. 
Some of you, God's been calling you to do something for so long, and you've been wrestling with God, and you've been delaying, and you've been making excuses. You've been trying to figure out all the reasons you couldn't do it, and God is saying, quit doubting any longer. Trust me, this is the day for victory. Some of you today are in the context, even in the context of relationships and marriage and family struggles and all these different things, and it seems impossible that you can't go on, that there's not going to be restoration, that there can't be healing. And God is saying, look to me, this is the day. And God looks at Barak and says, arise, this is the day of victory. We must receive God's word by faith. Barak in this moment, I believe, believed the message of God and trusted in the promise and presence of God that the Lord would go before him and would give him the victory. But that leads us to a second point, and that is this, in that decision, we must respond in obedience. Verse 14. It sounds so simple. It's just a summary statement, but I think it shows profound faith. What would you do in that moment? You and your 10,000 with few weapons and few experience and few soldiers against 100,000 with 900 iron chariots. It's like he's taking a butter knife to a gunfight. What would you do? Verse 14. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Here's Barak, the scaredy cat, walking forward in faith, walking down that mountain getting down to the valley, preparing for the battle that's at hand. Why? Because he's responding in obedience. Yes, we must receive God's word by faith, but we must respond in obedience. In other words, true faith doesn't just feel. True faith isn't just an emotion. It's not just a mental uh, uh, mind game. It's not just a mental understanding. No, true faith acts. Faith does The Bible reminds us that it was by faith, this acting in faith, these obedient acts of faith, that the men of old gained approval by God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 verse 6 that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Frankly, it was this kind of faith that was lacking amongst the men of Israel for the past 20 years. And now in this moment, Barak, looking in the face of all odds, knowing that this could result even in his death, He believes the promise of God, and he walks forward in faith. In other words, there are times in our life that we face situations that seem impossible, overwhelming, scary, dreadful. There are times in our life we face situations that seem impossible, but God uses our impossibilities as a platform for him to reveal his power and glory. He does. So picture the scene. Deborah looks at Barak and says, Barak, you see all those guys out there that have gathered? You, you see Sisera and those 100,000? You see Sisera and all those mighty chariots? They think they've come here to prove a point and teach you and everybody else a lesson. But what they don't realize is God brought them all here at one time to defeat them in one battle so that he would get the glory and would demonstrate his power in a supernatural way. Which brings us to the fourth thing, and that is the deliverance that God brings. So, Pastor, can God deliver me from my fear? Can God deliver me from my sin? Can God deliver me from the enemy's attacks? Can God deliver me? And the answer to that is when we walk forward in faith, absolutely he can. Verses 15 through 16, the Bible tells us in verse 15 
that the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Balak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Let me kind of briefly summarize what happened that day in the battle. The thing that stands out about Barak in this moment is not that he had this enormous faith, but when it counted, when he was brought to a crisis of belief, when he was brought to that place where his back was against the wall and where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, he put his total faith in the person of God, believing the message of God, and he walked forward in faith. But on the other hand, Sister, who came into that valley that day, he didn't have any hope or faith in God. Instead, he boasted of himself. His hope was in his army. His, he boasted of his, his weaponry. Oh, look at our resources. Look at all of our skills. Here's how David said it in Psalm 20, verse 7. He said, some boast in chariots, and some will even boast in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Barak is boasting and he's confident, I shouldn't say boasting, but he's confident in his faith in the context he, he believes in God, that God's going to give him the victory. Sisera believes in himself that there's no way he can lose. And that day, God did something incredible. God did the impossible. That day as that army from the Canaanites got into that valley, the Bible says that God routed them. And the Hebrew word for routed here is really weird because it literally means confused. God confused the enemy. He confused the enemy in a lot of different ways. First off, as soon as, as, soon as Barak began to walk down that mountain, the Bible tells us in Judges chapter 5 that clouds began to form and it began to pour rain in that valley. It rained so severely that the Kishon River that was nearby began to flood into that valley. Guess what? You can have all the chariots in the world, but if they're stuck in the mud, they won't go very far. Literally. God brought this monsoon of a rain, kind of like what we saw, saw this morning and last Sunday. God brought this huge rain. The river flooded, and literally it became a huge mud pit in the valley. And all of a sudden, those chariots that were their great resource, they're boasting in their chariots. Look at what we can do. Literally, they were stuck in the mud, so much so that they became an easy prey to the Israelites. In fact, Sisera, the great leader who boasted in his chariot and boasted in his power, he gets off of his chariot and he starts fleeing for his life. Why? Because God was routing the enemy and he was doing it even during the dry season where it never rained. That's what happened. In fact, in Judges chapter 5, the Bible even gives a picture that as the enemy began to dispel and as the enemy began to run, that the Bible says in Judges chapter 5 that the stars fell from heaven upon them. And most scholars believe that what the Bible is describing there is a hailstorm that began to pound them there in that valley as they tried to get away. He said, Pastor, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying when you trust God and walk forward in faith, there is nothing God can't and by the time you get to the end of Judges chapter 4, in one impossible battle, God completely destroyed the Canaanites, their cruel military leader in Sisera, and even their king in Jabin. And still to this day, God has preserved for us the story of Barak to show us what he can do with one man or one woman who's willing to put their faith in God and trust him. There are greater things in your life that God wants to do than you may ever have imagined, but you must be willing to trust him. 
As we pray and as we consider what God would have us to do with greater things related to missions and related to serving, as it relates to impacting this community, as it relates to even the facilities here, there are greater things that God wants to do, but we must be willing to look to him and to trust him and obey. In your life this morning, there are things that God wants to do, but the bottom line is we must be willing to have faith and obey. John said his power or his skill, his military ability or his resources, no, he was victorious because God was with him and Barak in that moment put his faith in God. Here's what John tells us in 1 John 5 verse 4. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. This morning I challenge you. I don't know what your fears are. I don't know how it's hindering you. But I believe God is calling many of us to trust him and obey this morning, if you're here today and you are a child of God, you know that you're saved, you've been forgiven of your sins, I challenge you, don't walk in doubt. Don't delay when God is convicting you to do something, when God is leading you to step out in faith. Say yes to him and obey. But secondly, I challenge you this morning, if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your first step of faith today is to take that step of faith to trust Jesus, that he is who he says he is, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again just like the Bible says, and that all who believe in him will be saved. You know, one of the things that stands out to me about Barak is that many of the times you read in the Old Testament, we read that God said something directly to someone. God spoke directly to Abraham, or God spoke directly to Isaac, or to Joseph, or God spoke directly to Gideon. Barak didn't have that. God spoke directly to Deborah, who delivered the message to Barak. Barak had to believe the message from God and trust it and walk in faith. In the same way, maybe you're here today and you're thinking, well, how can I, how can I, you're telling me my first step of faith is to believe in Jesus, but I don't see Jesus. I, I can't see him with my eyes. No, but you can hear the truth of who he is from his word. And I want you to know Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for your sins, and he rose again to prove that he's Lord. The only step that's needed now today for you to be saved is to believe in him personally to be your Lord and Savior. So I want to encourage you. Today, just like Barak had to receive that message by faith, I challenge you to receive that message by faith and be obedient to the Lord's leading. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for this morning and for the time that we have together. Father, thank you for the ways that you've spoken to our heart and the ways that you've challenged us not to walk in fear, but instead to walk in faith. God, I'm thankful for the illustration of Barak because it's a reminder to me of what you can do through any man or woman who's willing to trust you and surrender to you. And so, God, I pray today that we would do that here in this place. May you be glorified in it, I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.